queen has died, should queenhood also die? Welcome to Cringe Watchers, the podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. I'm Lori Edelman. And I'm Layla Darabi. This episode, we watched The Crown and asked Olufemi Taiwo, does the death of the queen mean the death of the monarchy? Yes. <laughs> Lori, it has been so long. I'm feeling rusty. How about you? It's good to be back. I missed it. I missed our sessions. I missed our guests. I'm not sure I missed our tagline. I'm a little bit over it. I know. Me too. I'm feeling a little self-conscious that we don't talk about sex as much as our tagline implies we do. <laughs> Maybe we should be the podcast where we're tens, but we have a feminist podcast. I love that. She's a 10, but she has a feminist podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or the podcast where we're spoon feeding you our feminist agenda by making you watch binge-worthy TV. I like that too. Well, we can keep workshopping it. Um, all of our dear cringe watchers, welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us so long. And definitely let us know what you think our new tagline should be for season three. In a post-Roe America, feminism is more important than ever before, but we're also all more tired and need to escape. And we hope this is a place where you can kind of tap into both. Layla, are you binging or cringing this episode? Lori, I, I really hate to bring it down after my enthusiasm about season three, but I am, cringing does not even begin to describe what I'm doing right now, but I am obsessively following what's happening in Iran with the protests that are spreading across the country after a woman named Masha Amini was, was murdered for incorrectly wearing a head covering, ostensibly. But 22-year-old Kurdish woman was arrested, beaten, died in custody. And unfortunately, it's not an uncommon occurrence in Iran, but it is a moment. And she's uh, a young, hopeful figure who sparked a lot of outrage right now. One of the things I've been cringing about is the, the fact that it took so long to be able to get any information except by texts from people in the country, and it is just now making it into mainstream media. I've been thinking so much uh, because every time I read an article, the intro to the article says, this is frustration that has built up over 43 years under the Islamic Republic's reign. And uh, you know, I'm 43 years old. I was born the day the monarch, the Shah of Iran, was forced out of the country. And that fact has been you know, told to me like a fable, but also has, has loomed large in my life as the reason I live in the US and not in Iran, as the, the length of time that the country has been under an oppressive religious regime. And I, I want everyone to look at the hashtag Masha Amini, because that is the hashtag that people are using. And I've been getting really heartbreaking direct messages from loved ones in Iran saying, please be our voice. The government is turning off the internet at opportune times. They don't want the images to get out there. The government's response to the protests have been absolutely violent. At least 35 people have been killed, and that's probably an underestimate. And so I think it's there's not a lot we can do from afar except amplify. And uh, and I think the, the way to amplify what the protesters are asking for directly is to look at that hashtag. And the images you will see if you follow that hashtag are really 
really uplifting. It's women leading protests, taking off their head coverings and burning them, symbolically cutting their hair. And it's powerful. I think we'll link to some some articles in the show notes. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that this one wave of protest is what it's going to take to overthrow this government. But I do think it is, unfortunately, a really timely tie-in to the topic we're talking about today, which is the legacy of oppressive regimes, the legacy of the idea of royalty and who gets to rule and who gets to tell the story. Wow, that's absolutely wild about your birthday. I didn't know that um, and absolutely have been following these protests and this awful, awful case. Thank you for lifting that up. And um, I hope that everybody listening does check out that hashtag and does do what they can to bring more attention to this story. Can you take it up a notch for us? <laughs> are you binging or cringing, Lori? And I really hope you're binging. <laughs> I am binging. And there are so many good shows right now. But my binge today is gonna come from YouTube. I cannot stop watching YouTube conspiracy theories about the Magnus Carlsen Hans Niemann chess controversy. Um, so for those who have not been following, there is a chess tournament in St. Louis and a very famous chess player, Magnus, who has a documentary that is simply named Magnus about how great he is at chess um, and is very, very well known and highly ranked in the chess world, um, lost to a very low rated player named Hans Niemann. And there are many, many reasons out there that people believe as to why this happened and what this means. But the A leading theory is that Hans must have cheated. The reason and the way that people think he must have cheated is by using a chess machine or a computer that can basically statistically figure out the best move at any given time. But how would Hans have had access to such a resource? And the one leading theory is that he used vibration-based anal beats. So one of the things I'm binging these conspiracy theories, but I'm also cringing the sort of vibes of homophobia that I'm getting by all of the bro snickering that's happening around this anal bead theory. But at least even though this is kind of like a light distraction for me, I suppose talking about chess means that we are keeping with our queen theme of the day. Um, no, not because she's gay, not because she used anal beads, though possibly both could be true, um, but because of, of course, the queen being that piece, that girl in chess, um, just like all of our culture uh, suggests that queens are. So we're going to be breaking that down today. And that is how I'm transitioning to our topic of the day, which is the crown. That's right. And I love that transition. I also think we should have a whole spinoff podcast because I have so many thoughts about chess social media and, <laughs> and, and whether or not Hans cheated. Uh, but today we are discussing episode eight of the second season of the Netflix show, The Crown, which uh, I think most people know follows decades of the life of Queen Elizabeth II, the very queen who has just died. Uh, in the Netflix show, in this episode, there are two main plots to this, uh, to what we're following. There is the plot of many countries leaving the Commonwealth and the Queen fretting about the downward spiral of her empire. And then there is another plot uh, which is that the the Kennedys, JFK and Jackie Kennedy, are scheduled to come visit uh, London. So very exciting juxtaposition of two stories. It really is. And I love that our episode is 
really flexible enough that if you watch The Crown or hate watch The Crown or don't watch The Crown at all, this episode is still for you because we found the perfect guest, Professor Olufemi Taiwo, to just really break down not only The Crown and these two plot points, but some of the broader political context under which um, the activities of The Crown, the plot points of The Crown, but also the death of the Queen and the, all of the political context against which these things are taking place. And Femi is an associate professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. He is the author of the book Reconsidering Reparations and his latest book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else is out now. Absolute fire. He's a favorite of mine on Twitter. He's very like funny, accessible on Twitter, but also obviously a super smart person. Um, so we're really pleased that we got to talk to him today. And his work is directly relevant to the issues and the questions that the show The Crown, as well as The Death of the Queen, have brought up to popular discussion right now. Yeah, it really was uh, kismet because, uh, you know, just this week, The New Yorker reviewed his new book, Elite Capture, and we we're going to link to that in the show notes. I think the the concept of elite capture really encapsulates what we want to get at today. Elite capture is the concept of the powerful taking control of the resources that are meant for everybody. And uh, I think there's a, a very powerful metaphor in that for the crown itself, but also other pop cultural applications of elite capture that we get into uh, with Femi. And it, it feels really timely as we're looking at, you know, the reason that we're doing this conversation today is because of the just omnipresence of news about the death of Queen Elizabeth in England. And I think you and I, Lori, have had a lot of conversations about how the the media coverage, all the pomp and circumstance of that of that funeral, of that small wealthy family in England's life, just is drowning out all the things we would rather be talking about, or it's just it's just one side of the story. Everything is through the lens of this British royal family that, at least from the U.S. perspective, we we've held up as, if if not gossip tabloid fodder, this like fairy princess royal family that we follow, and we wanted to get into the rest of it. What's what's the rest of the empire have to say about it? <laughs> Absolutely. So we did get into that with Femi. We also talked a little bit about how the mere fact of Queen Elizabeth being a woman is often framed as feminist, like a woman political leader who involves herself in foreign policy. And it just reminds me of the fact that like one woman's feminism is another woman's perversion of feminism. And, you know, to me, the you know, a, a woman queen, a woman monarch just really represents the the deep limitations of a politics of representation. So we talk about that with Femi as well. We really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a fire season three opener. Uh, we have a lot more like this in the works. So stay tuned and enjoy our conversation with Professor Olufemi Taiwo. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, Femi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk today about the show The Crown and a very special episode that uh, goes all the way to Ghana. I want to first level set and say, Lori, Femi, do you watch The Crown? Have you seen this episode? Have you ever seen the show? So I will go first because my truth is that I do not watch this show and I was so resistant to the idea of even watching one episode for our own podcast that Layla had to twist my arm. And then I watched it. I was so glad I did because there's 
so much to discuss in this show and so much that's relevant, I think, to my politics. So it's always good to know what the other side is saying, basically. That's my take on watching this show. And Femi, how about you? Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same position. I was like, I heard about the show. I heard the reaction to it. A bunch of my friends watch it. And I was like, this does feel like an update in the present political environment, whatever rehabilitation they're trying to do now. Maybe I should watch it just for that. And then the other part of me was just like, you know, I'm tired. I'm going to die someday. I've got other things to do. <laughs> There's so much television <laughs> and also uh, so many revolutions to start. Right. So we, we need more time. So I'm just going to set up uh, the, the opening of the show. It opens with a very not at all subtle imagery bomb where you see a big portrait of Queen Elizabeth being taken down and replaced with a big portrait of Vladimir Lenin. And in the background, you can hear a speech and then you understand that it is uh, Prime Minister Nkrumah of Ghana giving a speech that is very anti-British Commonwealth and very pro-Pan-Africanism, pro-socialism. Love it. For the people who cannot see, Femi just raised a fist. So I just want to <laughs> level set on that. <laughs> Please, Layla, continue. Exactly. Audio only. we got to narrate these things. So we're opening with this very powerful image of Kwame Nkrumah giving a speech, and it looks like to a, a hall full of other African leaders. And he's talking about how strong they should be together and how they shouldn't see themselves as individual nations, but as Africans. We meet here today, not as Ghanaians, Guineans, Moroccans, Algerians, Senegalese, or Malians, but as Africans, tired of being disrespected and abused by the corrupt and imperial powers of the past. The time has come to forge new alliances. Those who understand the strategic importance of Africa. And then later in the episode, you cut to Buckingham Palace. A lot of the narrative of the show, The Crown, is uh, the Queen Elizabeth meeting with the prime minister of the day. And I think the arc of the show is like this lady outlasted all of them. They come and they go. Tony Blair, Winston Churchill, she's she's seen eras. So I don't even remember the name of the prime minister of this era, but he's telling her with like real alarm that like something is going on in Ghana. One overriding item on the agenda today, ma'am. Ghana. Now continued concern for Nkrumah's growing hostility to the West. You feel that he's drifting from the Commonwealth? Not so much drifting as bolting for the door. Into whose arms? The Russians, ma'am. This whole Ghana plotline ends up being just the B story in this episode. The A story is that the Kennedys are coming to visit. I want to start with this moment of the speech and the switching out of the portraits, because I think this show obviously sets up Queen Elizabeth as the main protagonist, arguably the hero. It also takes such a mild tone to what outside of this show, I would say is one of the most exciting periods in history. It's maybe 1960, 1961. It's the year of the African. It's the year when 17 or more African nations declared independence. It is a moment that in my history classes, in my leftist family, we talk about with real passion and enthusiasm. But the whole point of this show is the keep calm, carry on. The queen's greatest strength is that she outlasts everyone. And my question for both of you is what if we were following 
Kwame and not Elizabeth, what are we leaving out when we're just looking at um, the Queen's mild reaction to losing maybe the, the gold star in her empire? Oh, boy. <laughs> it's it's very rare that you see Pan-African socialism depicted at all, you know, even as a B story or D or F story, you know. So, but what are we missing? Essentially, I mean, historians will get on me for this. I'm speaking a little loosely, but like, it was a world war. It was another world war. Like, the Cold War was World War Three, right? And... Sometimes the conflicts were hot, like Korea and Vietnam and Kenya, quiet as it's kept. And sometimes the wars were more diplomatic. You know, the referenda about whether or not to keep French colonialism in French West Africa. But like these people were fighting for their for their lives as they understood it, you know. And by these people, I mean the empires, right? And the people who had made it their business to keep the empires going. And part of the reason I imagine they don't tell the story this way is because they lost. And so, you know, maybe it just makes you know, for a little easier TV watching experience if you just focus on the Kennedys and what Jackie O was wearing or whatever. But. Part of it is also that we've just understood this historical period in such a way that undersells how big of a deal it was. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the emphasis on socialism being the threat. My read is that Nkrumah is talking about socialism as the tool to get to Pan-Africanism. He's not saying, I love the Russians, I'm trading in the Brits for the Russians. He's saying, I have a project and that project is my nation and taking control of our own resources. Yeah, absolutely. You know, socialism is a means to an end, the end being, you know, having self-determination and running your own affairs and doing that in solidarity with other people doing the same. And some of the people who had written and thought and acted on that thought were obviously Russian. Um, some were Chinese. The Sino-Soviet split was a big thing in this period. I mean, it's not as though the Soviet Union was the only state out there thinking about these things um, or acting on the idea of socialism. But yeah, I mean, it just was an expression of commitments people had about what they wanted to do in their own lives, running their own lives. And the response then and now has been, well... How does this fit into our power politics, to our geopolitical rivalries, and how can we ignore your own thoughts about your own political situation? Yeah, I think that's a really good, good point. And one of the reasons we wanted to cover this show is because viewership of The Crown went up four times, um, approximately since the Queen's death. And so people are watching this series now. And we know from this and other series that it's very hard for them to separate fact from fiction. And so the ways in which Pan-African socialism is depicted in this show, you know, to your point, Femi, is probably the main way that many, many people will see it depicted at all. And, 
you know, what strikes me is there is painstaking detail that goes into showing Elizabeth's innermost thoughts and feelings and what she might be going through as she is navigating her leadership um, and the, the trials and tribulations of her leadership. But we don't hear anything about Nkrumah or his his leadership or what he might be going through beyond his public speeches in this show. So that's that's kind of one thing that we we were struck by. Um, but. Nkrumah is also depicted in another scene in this episode. So I'm hoping I can tell you about that and get your get your take. It's the moment when he dances with Queen Elizabeth, the foxtrot. And yes, this did actually happen in real life. There are photos of this. And basically in this episode, you know, Nkrumah has a dam project he's working on and Queen Elizabeth imagines herself a diplomat who can come in and make sure that he stays with the West in terms of who he's collaborating with around this dam. So she goes to Ghana and this is very much against the recommendations of her husband and advisors. They, they literally say it will be unsafe. Um, other African nations will be jealous and you won't be a match for Nkrumah, the wily operator quote, you're the lamb the lion will have for lunch. So of course, they're setting us up yet again to root for our poor middle-aged heroine who happens to be a queen who wears a jillion stolen jewels all throughout the show, but she's going to show those male haters. So she gets there and um, all of this culminates in this moment where she ends up dancing with Nkrumah at a public event, ostensibly to confirm that he will continue working with the West. They're dancing. Our queen is dancing, sir, with an African. What? Was this agreed? Was this agreed? This was definitely not agreed. What are they doing? What are they doing? Hard to say. I believe it's the foxtrot. The foxtrot, sir. What do you make of this kind of dance and the fact that the show has all these like shocked reactions of people who may have been rooting against Elizabeth, but they, they depict it as like a win for her in her foreign policy. And of course, there's like this subtext of like, she's so anti-racist to be dancing with a black man. We know that that's really not the true context of the dance, but I'm just curious if you think this is an example of the colonial gaze or like what you make of this moment in history. That's really fascinating. It's interesting to me that, first of all, they portrayed Nkrumah as, the, as a wily operator. That's at least an update on, you know, stooge of the Russians or whatever it is that people would more commonly think. So, you know, points for that, I guess. But the whole dance thing and what it sounds like the whole conceit of the show is, is to really kind of personalize the management of empire. The show's called The Crown. It's about what Elizabeth thinks and feels about the various things that the Empire is doing. Um, from the sounds of it, it seems like this is taking place in the mid-50s. We think that this episode, they don't say, but it's probably 1960 or 1961 based on like what's going on in the Volta Dam project. And, okay, uh, 60. And, yeah. Yeah, so either, either during or right after the Mau Mau uprising. Right. Right. So, you know, some of these scenes are happening during straight up concentration camps. It's just like, what does it communicate? You know, we can leave aside the question of whether or not there's a reason to 
have a show like this at all. But if this is the exposure people are getting to the history, what does it communicate if the standard by which we evaluate whether or not the queen was anti-racist is what she does in the ballroom with the head of state as opposed to, you know, what Frank Kitson was doing at the concentration camps of Nairobi, right? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. When I was trying to convince Lori to watch this show, because I find the show really entertaining, I definitely find it factually inaccurate and whitewashing, uh, lionizing Queen Elizabeth. It also has a very strong theme of how they're all Nazis, how they're all, it digs up a lot of family dirt. It makes her husband look terrible. So my personal take, this is just me, not speaking for cringe watchers or Lori, <laughs> is that the trade-off is that you have to, in order to follow Elizabeth as the main character, concede that she's going to get the glow lighting. And you have to at least empathize with her, if not like her, along the way. But with everyone else around her, I think they are exposing, even the moment when she takes Nkrumah's hand, there's like a gasp and it's relayed by phone back to Buckingham Palace that the Queen and the and the and the Prime Minister are touching at all. And then they're dancing. And then so so I think there's a lot of symbolism that to me is the show saying, everyone here is racist. This is totally racist. There is an arc of the show that is forgiving Elizabeth because we're following her. That said, I would say another subplot of this whole episode is that she's not that smart. There's a scene earlier in the episode where her sister asks her, when's the last time you went to the theater? When's uh, the last time you read a book? You're a savage. You know, I was, I've been reading uh, your book, Elite Capture. There's uh, a part where you start talking about social media and how we reflect these kinds of, of identities and images online and how that plays into politics. Thinking about like the, the modern day Queen's funeral and on and everything that we're looking at right now. How is that changing? Yeah, I mean, the first point that you made about the arc of the show and who it follows and who it maybe implicitly criticizes seems like a really important one to me, right? You know, depiction isn't endorsement, all that sort of deal, right? So she's the main character. The narrative is going to cue to her, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the show isn't a, isn't being critical of her and those around her and all that. But it's also interesting to me to think about how all these things function now and how history about these things functions now with, you know, modern technology, modern social media that we have, especially sitting the show next to the actual event of her funeral and the response from people online. It really seems like commentators that I'm reading in the UK were a bit surprised to see some of the reaction from, I guess, angry people in the Commonwealth and, of course, people of color from the U.S. who get accused of sowing the seeds of dissent in the rest of the world, you know, maybe somewhat analogous to the role that the Russians played in this episode of, um, I should say the Soviet Union played in this episode of The Crown. It really seems like they're... Regardless of whether the direction of attention is critical or not critical, what is attended to has sort of independent political effects. So, so maybe we're criticizing Elizabeth, but if we're looking at Elizabeth, then there's certain things that are going to seem surprising, like talking about the Mau Mau uprising. Um, there's certain things that are going to be easy to talk about, certain things that are going to be harder to talk about. And 
that seems like it's at play both in the episode and in the reaction to the funeral. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we're getting into sort of reactions to the Queen's death, because I think that's a big reason, obviously, that we chose this show now, especially, you know, as someone who doesn't watch it. But it does feel like I'm in two different worlds. There's one world where they're like, kind of sure angry like there's the Ujuanyas of the world who are like yeah fuck this queen I'm cool with that but then it just also feels like there's a lot of people who are like there's other things going on in the world I don't want to spend two weeks you know queuing and, and watching this and they kind of shrug and move on and I think that's a huge part of the world and then you you do have folks who to your point are giving this all the attention and and all of the pomp and circumstance so like I think what I don't want to see get missed in all of this is the queen did die and we don't have to dance on her grave or ignore it to sort of speak to this point that that Layla was making about you know is the monarchy forever like I think it's a good moment to ask is the monarchy forever and you've written Femi that for justice to win those who oppose justice have to lose and I think sometimes that means they have to die. Like sometimes they'll lose because they've been overthrown or because, um, you know, they've been defeated in some way. But sometimes I think they just die. And I see that in all types of ways, like just in, in terms of how generations flow. But like, do you think the Queen of England's death counts as like people who are opposing justice losing? Like that's one question that's been on my mind. And, and it bothers me that the coverage is the way it is that so we can't like talk about that. It's a really interesting question. I think on the one hand, part of me thinks I'm just averse by personality to, you know, dancing on graves. And that's really in, in general. I just don't think that's the kind of thing that builds the sort of political or moral culture that is what I'm about, right? I'm not going to yell at people for doing it, uh, but, you know, that's there personality wise and i suppose there's an element of political suspicions to it but i definitely don't think either that the death of a monarch in and of itself is you know necessarily either a setback for monarchists or an advance for the opposition to monarchists especially a death of natural causes except in so far as it opens this question that you're talking about right the queen has died, should queenhood also die? And the police in London are doing their their level best to prevent anyone from asking that question too loudly in public right now. There have been a number of arrests to that effect. I think it's certainly a question worth asking. And to be honest, it strikes me as odd about British political culture that it isn't. And, you know, I'm not British. I, I don't, I haven't lived over there. I have family who do, but, you know, I can't say that I, I understand what is at the root of that. But if it takes a death to open that question up, then, you know, maybe, maybe I have to go back on what I said a second ago. Maybe, maybe there is something in it for opposers of monarchy. What was your, or your family's relationship to the idea of the Queen of England? before she died. Like what do you have a sense of how your relatives in the UK feel? I've found one of the most bizarre reactions to this death is how nostalgic a lot of people who I thought were progressives 
have been on social media, this like performative mourning. I was in France when it happened and a lot of French people I talked to were like really upset about it. I'm like, she's not your queen. I also, I saw an Iranian friend post that her daughter had said the queen had died. And she said to her daughter, who's queen? You're named after a queen. I'm named after a queen. She's not our queen. But I feel like people feel like she's everybody's queen. And I just don't understand that. Have you gotten the hot takes from the UK cousins? No, no hot takes, uh, which is encouraging because I also have seen this kind of nostalgia from people who the British Empire had formerly colonized. But for for my part, with the people I know, I haven't personally experienced that. You know, people die every day. That seems to be the the energy that that I'm getting from from most folks that I know. Yeah. Laurie, what about you? Did you do you follow uh, royal gossip? I know what you feel about the crown and the queen. <laughs> but I also feel like the, the US is oddly obsessed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, like with my my agent demographic, I think when it came into full focus was with Megan. And there are a lot of people I mean, there's, you know, Queen Bee, there's, there's so much uh, valorization of royalty within the black community that I think just goes like, unchecked is just a given. And so with Megan sort of marrying into the royal family, I mean, Black Twitter, everybody's all over that, defining that as kind of like an obvious win for her. I have complicated feelings about that, like obviously want to see folks happy and thriving, but it is problematic for sure to define like success and thriving as like marrying into this family. You know, one thing I was thinking about with The Crown is that they're apparently shooting their last season right now, season six. And some fans have speculated that it would lead into contemporary times and cover some of what's happening with Harry and Meghan and their sort of break from the formal monarchy, but still um, engaging with it. And in some ways, the way I see it, Meghan's positionality is like, kind of an amazing example of like the limitations of representation politics and like in some way it's almost like this monarch version of elite capture because she's like this extremely light-skinned black woman like who for all intents and purposes is not really different from anyone else in that monarchy except for the fact that she experienced racism herself and they have stepped away from some from the formal duty so it's sort of this weird thing where it's like is that like because of her blackness is that because of the racism that she faced um like how does that jive with what you understand about elite capture and um, identity politics yeah it really is a good example of one particular way that this goes where black people as a whole rightly are invested in the idea of being treated with equal dignity, right? It's not all just wages and cages, right? There, there are other political issues. And, you know, I get feeling some type of way about the royal family's treatment of Meghan Markle, especially since how they feel and how the British political establishment feels does affect more people than Meghan Markle, obviously. But also... This is the thinnest potential point of overlap between, you know, what black people face as a group, particularly black people of the UK and the quote unquote Commonwealth, right? This is the least politically substantial 
place where the interests of a Meghan Markle, you know, rich, attractive TV star and, you know, your average person living in the Barbados, right, overlap. And, you know, that's more often how elite capture works. It's not as though the interests of the Black elite are totally have nothing to do with the interests of everybody else. It's uh, it's a priority thing. How much attention and other resources are consumed by debates over this as opposed to over the myriad other things. In a lot of ways, it's like what we were talking about in terms of the depiction of the queen and her internal struggles on the crown goes, where it seems as though any version of participating in the discussion feels like a loss. Right? Whether the show is lionizing her or criticizing her, it, it is focusing on her either way. And it, it's not clear whether, you know, it's not clear what to do about that or whether there's a version of a conversation that starts there that ends with us reconsidering empire. That's a much more articulate version of what I was trying to ask earlier, where it's like, what do we lose because the crown is following the crown? And even if they go through all world events, and as you said, slip in uh, fun topics like Pan-African socialism, if we're still only seeing it through the crown filter, it does feel like a loss. The same way, like even having to think about the queen, whether or not you regret anyone's death, feels like a loss to me. It's an intellectual loss. The world is is a little loss. There's, you know, natural disasters happening in Puerto Rico. There's uh, protests happening in Iran right now over someone murdered for a dress code. And it feels like we can't have attention to anything if it's all obsessed. But I do want to get to the, um, the Kennedys of it all in this episode. And uh, I was also, when I was reading, I think it's even in the introduction, uh, to your book. I learned this fun fact, which I didn't know, which is that identity politics as a term came out of a meeting convened by JFK. Can you tell us that story of the links of of the Commission on the Status of Women and JFK and, and politics? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a windy story. But the basic thing that happened is that in 61, JFK, then President convenes a commission on the status of women. And within that is a kind of subcommittee on Black women. And emerging from that comes a group called NOW, which I imagine you all know about, the National Organization for Women. Then there, there were high hopes for this as a kind of vehicle for feminist policy and practice, and people, you know, argue about to what extent it um, lived up to those. But enough Black people were dissatisfied with how well it did on issues that had to do with Black women that a decade and change later, there is a group formed, the National Black Feminist Organization. And it is in a chapter meeting of the National Black Feminist Organization, where two of the original founders of the Combe River Collective met, um, Demita Fraser and Barbara Smith. And they, having some critiques of the National Black Feminist Organization, decide to form a collective that is more queer-friendly, that is more socialist, 
and in general friendly to radical economics. And that collective that they form is the Combe River Collective, a queer black feminist socialist organization that formed up in Boston. And it is their manifesto that they published, their collective statement that they published where we get the term identity politics. Amazing. You brought it all back around. And amazing that it, that original meeting takes place within the same conflated timeline of this episode of The Crown. Nice. So presumably between their visiting Buckingham Palace and then uh, there's another uh, private tea between Jackie O and, and the Queen, somewhere within then, uh, JFK is convening this meeting. Another thing we don't hear about because we're listening to Queen Elizabeth's internal insecurities. I think we've covered a lot. Like, you know, Femi, I'm really appreciative of like your work and analysis because I do work in the, the feminist space. We see a lot of the dynamics that you write about in, in my work. You know, a lot of virtue signaling, a lot of the deferential politics that you write about happening. Um, and it's really hard to talk about those issues without kind of coming out sounding like strangely conservative, I think. <laughs> so I appreciate the language that you give us and I appreciate your, you doing this fun interview with us today. We have a cringe fire that we do. The first question in the cringe fire is, what shows are you binging? I just rewatched Breaking Bad on the last episode with my wife who hasn't seen it yet. So that's fun. Whoa. Um, and Better Call Saul. <laughs> so that's how we got here. Okay, so I'm watching Better Call Saul with my partner, but we it's just taking us forever to get through the show. So I kind of want to rewatch Breaking Bad on the side, but it feels kind of wrong, you know? But that's a good one. Okay, is there something in the world right now, any category, anything that you're finding super cringy at the moment? What is making you cringe? Ooh, I think the texts themselves and the entire conversation around the whole Adam Levine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about that just makes me cringe deeply in White my soul. White people sexting. <laughs> I was trying so hard to avoid reading the actual text, but then a, a TikTok sang them to me. No. <laughs> I'll never unhear them to the tune of a Maroon 5 song. <laughs> Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed in TV, film, literature, culture? Is no an acceptable answer? <laughs> sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's all fine. I don't know if it's all fine, but there isn't like anything extra. There are some Fair things enough. we should delete, maybe. <laughs> that's a, we've never gotten that answer before. It's very unique. <laughs> there, in some ways, that's better portrayed. Like better portrayed by being uh, less yeah, portrayed. That's true. That's true. Femi says, "Do less." Um, do yeah. less. Yeah. <laughs> Good tagline. Okay, last one. Do you have a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality in TV, film, or literature? Um, there's a season one. I think it's actually the pilot. Um, or at, it's a very early episode of Breaking Bad where there's this really character-building scene of sex between Skylar and Walter that just felt like a way to actually use sex to tell a story about who these people are. So I, I thought that was good. Interesting. Okay, now I'm definitely going to have to rewatch. Yeah, I was just going to say, I need to rewatch that too because I don't remember. But that's that's a great answer. <laughs> it is. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. 
Thank you to our guest, Olufemi Taiwo. You can read more of his work on Twitter at Olufemi Otaiwo, O-L-U-F-E-M-I-O-T-A-I-W-O, and go cop his book, Elite Capture. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan, Judith Walker created our logos and cover art, and D.L. Dallas Angram created our original theme song. And you may have noticed new theme music on today's episode, which was created by the inimitable Amy Klein of the band AK and the Hallucinations. Thank you so much, Amy, for this song. We absolutely love it. You can find DL on SoundCloud and Amy on Spotify. Don't forget to tell your friends about us. And you can also find us everywhere podcasts are available. Beyond the digital.